FIA welcomes you to The Art Parlor, where visually impaired artists of all types will discuss their work. Pull up a chair, bring along your beverage of choice, and listen to thoughtful, stimulating conversations with visually impaired artists in all media and from all parts of the world. And now, here's your host, Lynn Heddle. Welcome to this edition of Art Parlor. We have several participants and a special guest this show, and he is our 2019 scholarship winner, Mr. Matthew Schifrin. Hi, Matthew. Hello. Pleasure to be here. And congratulations on your winning of our scholarship. It was a difficult decision, and we'll address the scholarship at the end of the show. We'll encourage people to apply and everything. Oh, please but let's do. talk to you and get to know you a little better. Uh, you are a countertenor. Could you tell me what that is? A countertenor is a man who sings with the vocal range of a woman. So, like, the tenor sings low, and the countertenor sings high. So, basically, your goal is to sing as if you're Mickey Mouse. But on your audition voice that you sent, you had a very nice, light tenor voice, but you can tell that it can be in a higher range. How did you find that you were a countertenor? My voice was breaking, and huh? I was like, oh, I'm a really bad tenor. I keep having voice cracks. And I switched vocal teachers to someone who was more adept at training countertenors. And she trained me for a little bit, and the voice kind of improved. I was going through the breaking process without many issues. And then I kind of stuck around as a tenor, um, just because the, the countertenor stuff was nice, but it was kind of nebulous at that point. I didn't really know how, how to approach it. And then I get to my first year at New England Conservatory, and my professor tells me, hey, do you want to be a really crappy tenor or a really great countertenor? And I said, you know, I'd rather be the countertenor. He said, okay, let's do it. And so for the past three years, I've been studying as a countertenor. So you're actually studying with someone who is a countertenor. Mm-hmm. And where do you, do you sing the alto line of, of any, of, in a chorus or? Mm-hmm. Yes, I sing alto. Okay. Um, hey, Peter, I think Peter had his hand up. Yeah, I, I, just a, a question. I thought the official term was contratenor. Um, the reason I'm, I'm wondering is, um, for those of you who know PDQ Bach, he used the term countertenor in a very sort of snarky way in one of his pieces of music. So unless I'm wrong, I think the proper term is contratenor. Am I, am I right, Ned? As far as I can tell, um, contratenor is a term for a tenor whose chest voice is able to extend up that high. Um, James Bowman is an example. Um, okay. And he's, he's a guy who is able to sing kind of extend his chest voice up there and have a kind of richer, creamier sound. And that's contra-tenor. But counter-tenors are the people who kind of switch to their head voice. Oh, okay. That's what you're saying, because the way he he defined it, like counter-tenor was somebody who uh, staffed a counter at a five-and-dime store and uh, sang tenor as he was, uh, you know, uh, checking out his customers or something. It was, uh, I don't know if you know PDQ Bach. He was, he was very snarky when he wanted to be. So, he also, anyway, thank you, for- you know, characterized what, what I think I am now as a mezzanine soprano. It's like somebody that's not quite, can't quite get up there <laughs> anymore. God. Well, thank you for, for tolerating my question. I appreciate it. Actually, I didn't know that. Nor That's did I. That's interesting. Are you studying voice at the New England Conservatory currently? Or? I'm studying contemporary improvisation, okay. which is a degree for people who are singers for basically multi-instrumentalists. So and so I you sing, play other instruments? Yes, I sing and I play accordion. 
and, and how so, did you how did you get started playing the accordion? That's it was accidental. A friend of mine had an accordion that he didn't need. He said, "Hey, I don't need this accordion. I'll give it to you and teach you how to play it." And I was like, "Hell yeah!" <laughs> so this guy taught me how to play the accordion, and I've been kind of accordionizing ever since. Right. Do you play and sing mostly classical music, or I don't think the accordion would lend itself to that, but um, where do you play that instrument? I play the accordion mainly in Jewish music or Brazilian music or Persian music, and I write a lot of musical theater, so I use the accordion to accompany myself with the musical theater that I write. And other than that, it's, it's kind of a, an even split between classical music and more theatrical stuff. So you do some of the musical theater with your improvisatory studies? It's that, does mm -hmm. it include all of that? Yeah, yeah. Because the way they teach composition is they, uh, it's called contemporary improvisation because their goal is to kind of teach you how to compose, but compose through improvisation. So you'll sit down, you'll kind of bang away at the piano, have different texts that you make up, and then you'll edit and revise and edit and revise until you get kind of a fully fleshed song. So do they teach you how to use recording equipment to do all of yes. that? Yes, they do. And do you, are you a Braille user? Yes, I am. So you, do you get Braille music or do you get just the alto music to learn? Or how do you learn your music for, like if you're going to sing a concert? I mainly learn my music by ear because uh -huh. Braille music is hard um, from a hard copy standpoint in the sense of, let's say, I don't know, let's say I'm going to sing some Bach from the St. Matthew Passion. You're going to have to and memorize it. I, I know I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would have to lug four or five volumes with me. That's really not practical in the wow. 21st century. It's not? Reading it on a Braille display is impossible because they, you can't, you, I mean, when you're reading paper music Braille, you'd read lyrics with one hand and uh, music with the other. But that's impossible on a single line display. So I just learn everything by ear. And usually that's pretty reliable just because you don't see a lot of classical musicians straying off the beaten path and improvising the Bach. That's just not, not something they do. And so usually that's reliable. So what year are you? Or you say you've been three. Are you a junior? Yeah, I'm a junior. Okay. So you have one more year. Mm -hmm. And um, where, what are your plans after that? What's your future goals for as far as music is concerned? In graduate school, hopefully, if things go according uh -huh. to plan, um, I'd be continuing with voice studies and hopefully add some composition in as well and just kind of see how that goes. Things are a little up in the air just because I, I mean, as a junior, I'm just focusing on kind of the current workload and writing a musical and, and a podcast I'm working on and all this other, this other stuff. But um, probably um, next year will be really the, the senior year, the year of grad school applications and GREs and blah, blah, blah. But and in the summer, you do, you do some traveling? Mm -hmm. Yeah, in the summer. Um, I did a festival in Austria last summer, and that was really energizing just because the, the program was about German leader, German art song, and the faculty were so, so professional. They had such incredibly high standards that you, you had to come prepared or else, or else they might kick you out. I mean, and they probably would. <laughs> kind of one of our head piano coaches had taught voice at Tanglewood for 30 years, and so you knew that when you came to this guy, everything had to be rock solid. You had to know what your text meant. You had to not be messing up when singing. And you just had to be so, because this, this program in Austria focused on the artistry of you. And their goal was, oh, not just, oh, we're gonna teach you the text. No, you should do that on your own. Their goal was really 
kind of engaging you with the not only with the text of what you're singing but with the time with the history with the kind of the poetry that your text was based on and that was really just a really valuable lesson in understanding and engaging with all these pieces that I that I sing. How many did you have to learn? Um, we performed three and the pieces are fairly short like a minute and a half to two minutes so one by Hugo Wolf, one by Kienzel, who's a composer from Graz, the city where we were in Austria, and another by Fitzner, who's a slightly more contemporary, early to mid 20th century German composer. Uh-huh. Have you had to do the obligatory junior recital? Oh, thankfully not. The contemporary improv majors don't have to do one. They only have to do a senior recital. And I'm incredibly glad. All the poor vocalists are scuttling around and organizing people to accompany them and this and that. And I'm just sitting there and working on my own things. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> next year? I'll worry about it next year, not this year. So can you do it all on your own? Can you do your own music accompanying and everything? Or yeah. do you have to get somebody to work with you? No, no, no. You can do your own music. Because it's contemporary improv, the rules are much um, much less strict. Sounds like If that. I were just classical voice, oh, it would be hell if I were yeah. just classical voice. But I'm not. So I don't have to worry about it. It's great that because I know, you know, seven, I was a music major and some of those departments can be rather rigid in their expectations and the way they do things and let's do it the way we've always done it but I love the um, encouragement to improvise and and be spontaneous and I think probably you started doing that when you as from at a much younger age you know from your parents from what I've read about you you've sort of been an explorer all your life I mean I I think it's important to go out and see what the world has to offer yeah, I was. Um, I started improvising at like six or seven, and it wasn't really anything, anything concrete—just little songs I'd make up. But mm-hmm. I studied with a jazz teacher as a child, a jazz voice teacher, and she really kind of got me into improvisation from a vocal standpoint and scatting and just kind of building solos. And I think that's really valuable, no matter what standpoint you approach it from, classical or jazz, because yeah. as a classical musician, the the scatting and the solo really open you up to the kind of creative possibilities if you if you leave the score behind to go your own way and then from an exploration standpoint my parents were really really energetic and they really encouraged me to go out and kind of experience the world as much as I could and so when we'd go somewhere over winter vacation their goal was really to figure out how much we could experience and so we rappelled down a waterfall and they were just like hey do you want to rappel down a waterfall and I said sure I don't see why not and we did it. And it was a really interesting experience because you're hoisted up on this rope that's tied around these trees and um, there's water running down kind of past where you are. And it's kind of a, a torrent whooshing down and you have these rocks that you're kind of precariously perched on. And you need to listen to people's directions and trust them very well. Because I otherwise... imagine. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you grab something that's not there, you're going to... I mean, you're tied to a rope, but it's still not pleasant to face smack a cliff face so it was a really engaging experience and then you, you get to the bottom and you're like wow i made it i made it down this waterfall and i didn't die you're a lucky person <laughs> speaking of of adventures i came across this book a couple of years ago and i'll just put this in here so people can um we'll put the link to in the announcements but it, it sort of describes you <laughs> This is about a gentleman who lived in seven, from 1786 to 1856. And I believe he was an African-American, but he was a blind person. And the name of the book is A Sense of the World. 
how a blind man became history's greatest traveler. And this man, even though it was the 1780s and 90s, went to um, Africa to fight slavery. He went to Ceylon. He went to was a captive in Siberia, and he uh, explored the outback in Australia and did who knows what else. Wow. His name is James Holman. Mm-hmm. The book is written by Jason Roberts. It's on Bard, which is 62703, and it's on Audible. So that's kind of reminded me of you that when I was thinking about that book, I thought this guy, you know, is, is kind of like this blind traveler in the 18th century. So Very cool. <laughs> you, I'll um, check it out. Yeah. So you sort of have been an adventurer all your life. And tell us a little, too, about your experiences with developing Lego, which is another kind of art, I think. It, it's you're building things and constructing things and maybe not so you've got a set of instructions so maybe you're not so improvisatory but um how did you get into as if you've got enough with the music you're also into the lego accessibility so talk a little about that if you would i mean the whole lego thing started accidentally i was my friend was driving me back from a lesson and suddenly she breaks the car stops it pulls over says hey you need to get out and i said why we're not even home she said doesn't matter you need to get out of the car I say, okay, fine. I get out of the car and we walk to the curb and she says, there's a big plastic crate in front of you. It's very heavy. I need you to lift it and get it in the trunk. Okay, fine. And and this crate is heavy. I'm like six or seven at the time. And so this crate is half my weight. And so heave this crate into the trunk of her car. And then she says, okay, I want you to open it. And I open it and it's filled to the brim with Lego pieces, all shapes, all sizes, all types. And that's really how my love affair with Lego started. And um, this friend, Lila Finkel, a family friend, her focus was really to make experiences as accessible as possible for me as a blind child. And so she would like braille board games so I could play them with my friends. But Lego was one of the things that you just could not adapt no matter how you sliced it because the instructions are graphics, they're pictures. And you couldn't scan them, you couldn't do anything like that. So when I first got into Lego, I would build it with my parents and the parents are busy. That's the trouble with parents. And so when I wanted to build things, they'd say, oh, no, no, we we don't have time. Or we'd build something halfway and then they'd say, oh, we have things to do. And it would just remain half built and then get demolished and end up in the general Lego bin. And so for many years after, for seven years after, I thought, oh, I'm I'm never going to be able to build a Lego set on my own. But then... On my 13th birthday, Lida brought this big cardboard box and this big fat binder. And when I say big, I mean like Braille dictionary big. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Five copies of the Yellow Pages big. And so in this box is a Middle Eastern Lego palace that's made of like 850 pieces. And in the binder were these instructions that Lida brailled by hand on the Perkins Brailler. And what she did was she made up a special vocabulary. And she created different names for all the different types of Lego pieces that this set had. And she described it in such a way that I could build this set on my own from start to finish. And that was really a thrilling experience for me. Because I, I mean, I I never thought that as a blind kid, I'd be able to build Lego. The trouble is I had a lot of friends at that time in elementary school. They were big into Lego. They could build anything their hearts desired. And they'd come into class and they'd say, hey, we built a remote control dump truck. I'd say, wow, that's pretty cool. How do you do that? And they looked at me like I had two heads and they said, well, you know, we 
we looked at the instructions and we followed them and we built it. And they'd really be kind of at a loss for how to how to describe the process. Monkey see, monkey do. But in this case, monkey read, monkey do. And that whole process really was fascinating to me because as a, a blind child, Lego becomes this medium that's able to teach you about the world. That Middle Eastern Lego palace that I built, it was domed. It had all these arches and these stairways and these balconies and all this architectural glory to it that I'd never experienced before. And I thought about what this could teach blind children, what this could teach blind children, not only about architecture, but about vehicles they see in their daily lives, like a, a garbage truck. Okay, yes, we know the garbage truck takes our garbage, but what's that process like? And I understood that these blind kids could engage with the world around them using Lego or movies. Let's say you see the, the latest sci-fi blockbuster and there's a big spaceship in it. And all you know is that it's a big spaceship. But if you build that big spaceship out of Lego, then you are fully engaged with the universe of that movie. You feel like you're part of it because you know what that spaceship looks like. You built it with your own two hands. And so that's when Elida and I realized that we had to get this project out into the world. And so we started a website called legofortheblind.com. And onto that website, we made text-based instructions for every single Lego set that we could get our hands on. And we put them there. And then I thought, you know, this is great. But the trouble was we were getting bombarded as soon as that website launched. We were getting bombarded with emails from parents of blind children and blind children themselves saying, hey, this is great. Can you make this set accessible? And that one? And how about this other one? The trouble was we were just two people in the living room doing this in our spare time. And we had to turn these people away. And that's when I realized that we had to turn this project up a notch. And so I got in touch with Lego and asked them whether they'd be interested in making their own text-based instructions so that blind kids could build their Lego sets on their own, just like sighted kids. And miraculously, Lego said yes. And they jumped into it, kind of feet first, into the deep end. And they were so energized and so committed by this, by this process that they recently released text-based instructions for four of their new sets. And they're going to release text-based instructions for 50 more sets by the spring of 2020. Well, I went to the website and noticed there were about 30 of them up there. Mm -hmm. And it's wonderful because it tells, there's a link to download the instructions and they're it also tells how many pieces are in the set to build. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking mm -hmm. there's one that I noticed up there was, was a beach cabana that has 42 pieces. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if, if how long does it, is it, would that be doable maybe if we got a hold of that? That would be a fun workshop for this summer uh -huh. if, if we all got together and, and us adults, child, child adults, because we never mm -hmm. grow up, built a Lego set. Oh, sure. Um, I'd suggest that beach cabana is totally, totally fine. I'd suggest the Arctic snowmobile just because it's, um, that beach cabana is a set from the 90s and you can okay. find it on eBay um, and you can find it there. But the Arctic snowmobile is a little bit more readily available. And so I'd suggest it and it's a little bit more realistic just because the, the beach cabana isn't really, I mean, it's, it's like a archway with leaves and a table and a surfboard yeah so it's not i was looking actually, for something with not without two thousand pieces you know because <laughs> oh of course i mean the snowmobile has 50 i think okay and you can definitely start with that and it's a good kind of good engaging build and it gets the the brain cooking that would be a good way to go about it 
So, the, so then the company is actually into this and they're adding more. Does it, do they show up on your site or do you get them from the Lego site? They have Lego. a website called legoaudioinstructions.com that they have. So if you go there to legoaudioinstructions.com, they have instructions currently for four different sets. One of them is a police helicopter. One of them is an art studio and then a T-Rex and then a, oh goodness, what is it? It's like a spaceship repair building. And so I'd suggest if you wanted to start with a set, the Bricks and Ideas set, which they have instructions for on that website is the best place to start because each of the convention goers could build a different model that set builds three or four different things, a house, a piano, a train, and a T-Rex. And so that, that set would be easiest because it's very kind of, it teaches you how to use those instructions, but it's also very versatile in the sense that you can build a bunch of different things out of it. You know, I remember as a child having some Lego, but it was nothing like this. It was just some bricks, but mm -hmm. I'm, I'm ready to sort of, you know, be a child again and get one of these things and play with it. it it's oh, just, please, go it ahead. It sounds like so much fun. Oh, really? Um, did you get, actually get to go to Denmark and talk mm -hmm. to these folks? Wow. Oh, it was wonderful. I went to Denmark where Lego is based and I was meeting with these folks about the release of these instructions. And it was really something because the energy of these folks, the commitment, the enthusiasm, these are folks who'd been working at Lego for 30, 40 years and this had just never come up. And they'd been working on all these other projects and then this came up and they jumped on it. And they, they really worked and honed their, their craft of creating these instructions. And they really worked incredibly hard to make sure that these instructions are as clear and comprehensible and legible and engaging to blind builders as possible. And I understand sadly, um, and I know this is why you want to carry this on, one reason you have lost your dear friend. I mean, yes, that's a fact. And I think, I think it's important to, when you have projects of this magnitude that can help so many people, I think it's important to keep them going no matter the circumstances, just because these instructions that she made had such a profound impact on me that I think the least I can do is get this impact out to as many blind children and blind parents and parents of blind kids, whoever is in this community as possible, so that they can really engage with Lego as a medium as much as I have. Fabulous. Anybody else have any questions? It's Annie. Hey. Um, Hello. Matthew, I wanted to know, what's your favorite Lego set? Um, <clears throat> I think the Tower Bridge is my favorite, just because it's, it's a really interesting representation of this bridge in London. And it's very kind of, it's this bridge that has two towers and there are these covered walkways that go from one to the other. Mm -hmm. And then um, you kind of have bridge on either side that's connected by these giant chains. And uh, it's a, a lift bridge. So the central parts of the bridge are able to lift up to let boats that are on the Thames pass through. And I just think it's a really ingenious example of kind of Lego as an accessibility tool. Lego has the architecture sets, which mm. they make, which are different famous buildings. And I think that sets like that are really, really valuable to blind people because they teach you so much about these buildings that we've heard so much about, but have never experienced. Like the Statue of Liberty, for example. We know it's a lady holding a torch. <laughs> we know the French gave it to the Americans in the late 18th century, early 19th century. But what else? And building such a historical landmark out of Lego, I think really helps, really oh, helps you contextualize these things. It's just 
so important. And tactile learning is yeah. a type of learning that, you know, that we need. Yeah. Agreed. You know, to make the connection. Mm -hmm. sure. I'm, you know, I live in Birmingham and um, I don't know if you know this, Matt, but Birmingham is famous for a statue of Vulcan, which was presented at the St. Louis World's Fair in, I think, 1903 or something like that. It was done by an Italian sculptor. And he's been sitting up on Red Mountain with his backside um, facing Birmingham. And that's, there's been a lot of commentary about that. But he, he wears a very short skirt. Mm -hmm. And the way the statue was made, <laughs> um, you know, he's pretty exposed. And, and so he was there for many years. And they f it was a bronze statue. And they filled it full of concrete. So he began to crack and kind of need some repair. So they took him down off of the mountain, and while he was down getting repaired, uh, there's a as part of the program that they have at the Birmingham Museum of Art here, some of the blind patrons were allowed to go and touch him and just mm. get a concept of how actually big this thing is. It was just very cool, amazing. It's, it's even hard to conceive the size because you only get to experience a little bit of something that large, but if you could maybe touch the whole thing or hold it in your hand, you would get a better concept. So there's just such, you know, your contribution is just so important to encourage people to learn tactilely and, and you know, anything that we can, we can have, descriptions, tactile models, build it yourself. It's just, we, we want it all. Oh, of course, because touch is so sequential as opposed to sight. You can only go inch by inch, row by row, piece right. by piece. And it's interesting. I went to Italy a couple of years ago, and their stance on accessibility is completely different than that of the U.S. I went to Rome, and I went to their art museums, and they said, hey, you can touch everything. And I said, are you sure? And they said, yes. You can't imagine how much sculpture we have lying around. Come on, have a, have a good time, they said. And so... I went and I touched anything and everything that was touchable. Oh, that's and, great. Um, oh, I want to go. <laughs> you will. Yeah. And it was just a really, really engaging experience because like all these statues that you've heard about, the, the Capitoline Wolf with Romulus and Remus, for example, something like that. I mean, you know, big wolf, small children, but being able to touch it is really a thrill. And then they have a museum of Leonardo da Vinci's inventions. And they have models of Leonardo da Vinci's inventions that are kind of scale and you can touch them and they're totally fine with it, which I think is incredible just because they're such an art-based city anyway that they're just like, hey, why not? We have lots of it. We'll just let everyone, we'll let the blind people enjoy it, which I think is a really interesting view as opposed to the American standpoint where if you want to touch any sort of sculpture in a museum, they will give you the thickest gloss yes. known to man. My mother and I have set off many alarms in the United States when she was alive. <laughs> My mother had to play lookout. We were at the cloisters in New York, and there are these, um, goodness, what are they called? Uh, there are these reliefs on the stairwells that you're technically not supposed to touch. But my mom was like, hey, I'll be on the lookout for security guards. You need to touch everything as quickly and effectively as possible. Go. <laughs> I, th I think our moms would have gotten along really well. <laughs> I would agree. And wow. it was just such a thrill. And I was like, those guards, are they coming? Are they coming? She's like, nope, nope, don't see them. And I was like, oh, okay, next thing, next thing. <laughs> well, I'm also thinking about how in school, I 
was given some tactile representations, but they were always embossed on paper, uh, maybe drawn in such a way, like I remember my teacher had a way of, of drawing and then running it through a machine that would raise it. But I always found the embossed representations to be lacking because you didn't have that 3D kind of, you didn't have that, that entire perspective and you just kind of had to make up part of it as you went along. And Agreed. So I'm thinking, wow, what, what what's going on here is just so much more illuminating and, and there, there's a lot more a blind person can grab from all that. That's great. Oh, very much. And that's not all. He's a daredevil. Tell us about that. Oh, sure. I'm building a virtual reality helmet for blind people. And this virtual reality helmet uses these spinning gyroscopes. And these spinning gyroscopes are mounted above your ears. And these, there are these wheels that spin really quickly, and then they stop spinning. And what that does is it makes you feel different motions, like you're falling or flying, or flipping through the air. And the reason I hmm. built this helmet in the first place was because I wanted blind people to feel more immersed in the media around them, like comic books, for example. Comic books are completely inaccessible to blind people. And I found it pretty ironic that Daredevil, the blind superhero, comes in a medium that is completely inaccessible to blind people. So I thought, well, how can we take this very visual experience and make it more immersive? And so I thought, well, you take this comic book, and these comic books run on scripts, which are like film scripts. So if we can find the scripts to this comic book, we take it, then we adapt it into a 3D sound radio drama where the sound is all around your head. It's not just left and right like stereo. It's behind you, above you, below you. That way we can get you an immersive soundscape. But where do we go from there? And then I was just thinking about what's it like to be a superhero, to feel these motions. If you're Spider-Man, then you're swinging from a skyscraper. If you're the Incredible Hulk, then you're just this giant immovable block of stuff, an immovable force, mass, whatever you want to call it. And I was thinking, what if we could take the cinematic qualities of the comic book, the acrobatics, the action, the thrill of it, and transpose it onto you or me? And so got um, in touch with some engineers at the MIT Media Lab, and we started Project Daredevil, which is our startup that's building this helmet. So you don't Very have it cool. built yet. You're working on you're, it's built. It's working being built. on it. Mm -hmm. How cool is it to be involved in all the testing and the building as you go? I'm, I'm just imagining, like, where did you even start with the, like, well, the idea is there, but how did, like, what was the first part, for example? Like, how did you get started? I mean, first part, thankfully, the engineer who's working on this project with me, he's very much into airplanes and fighter jets, oh. and he's training to be a test pilot in the Air Force. Oh, wow. And so... I asked him, hey, how can we impart these feelings onto you so that you can feel the dynamic nature of motion? And he said, oh, well, we'll, we'll figure out, kind of, we'll figure it out as we go along. And so kind of our first, first order of business, like we, we took it from two different ends. I took the creative approach and he took the building approach. Nice. So my goal was to deal with the radio drama. And that was a really interesting process because it required sound design and it required all these different elements that I think are really fun to make. So I had friends who are voice actors and I said, hey, can you come and record this? And they said, sure, no problem. And so they came and we're using special microphones for 3D sounds. And my goal was to use kind of manufactured sounds and sound libraries as little as possible. I wanted to make it as authentic as I could. And so I told my friend, hey, here's a giant bag of potato chips. 
I need you to munch with embarrassment. Can you do that? He's like, well, I, I guess so. And so he starts munching and we start recording. And then there's a scene where another character is supposed to catch this guy eating junk food and reprimand him for it. And the other character does. And this guy's trying to swallow his potato chips and like apologize. And it is perfect. And I'm just thinking you wouldn't be able to get that like online. That's just something you have to, you have to record in person. And then after we had all the sounds and the dialogue for the radio drama, then came the aspect of scoring, which I also found was really interesting because scoring radio drama is much more subtle than scoring a film in the sense that when you're scoring a film, you can be, you can be bombastic and let the visuals guide you. But when you're scoring a radio drama, you need to score under dialogue and you need to, I just have some sequences where there's no music at all because it's more effective that way. And it was just really interesting listening to different radio dramas by CBS and the BBC and all of these organizations and trying to figure out what makes them work, what makes them effective, or what doesn't make them work, and why not. And it kind of turned into this whole research project to make sure that what I was making was engaging but wasn't stifling from a musical standpoint. Yeah, this is Peter, and I just wanted to say that, um, and, and listening to all this, when he cuts the chase about all this, the, the main goal is to know what your strengths are and then to find people with complementary strengths. And all, that amazing things can often happen. You know, that one, those two phone calls that you made, one got the Lego project started and one got this helmet started. And sometimes advocacy is no more than that, just making the right phone call, making the right connections. Oh, very um, much. Yeah, I mean, uh, and, and sometimes that's more effective than lobbying the government or something. You know, that's, that can be important as well. But sometimes just finding the right people and getting them excited and what you're excited about and then collaborating uh, can be uh, sometimes more effective than, than, you know, trying to get the federal government to move forward five centimeters. You know, it just sometimes it seems to work better. I wanted to go back to your musical um, thing, and I have one question to ask you first. And do you know if the GREs are now currently accessible? I think they are, but okay. I'm not quite sure. To be honest, I haven't looked into it too much. Um, well, let me, let, me, let me tell you a cautionary tale. Please uh, do. This was many, many years ago. Uh, I took the music juries to apply to Lincoln Conservatory and other, other graduate schools when I was a senior, and I showed up for the exam, and they had a reader for me, but the reader could not read music. And <laughs> so, oh, that's <laughs> awful. It was terrible. So half the, half the questions had musical scores, uh, had musical uh, you know, things in them. So I, you know, I sort of stumbled through the answers, questions I could answer. So then um, uh, I applied to in conservatory and I got a call from the head of admission saying, hey, we, we like your background, but your GRE score is terrible. And I said, well, I sent you a note explaining, you know, what happened that, you know, and so he said, oh, I said, he said, he put me on hold. And I heard ruffling around, rustling around the, uh, the file cabinets because that goes, oh yeah, I see your note. We'll be in touch and slam the phone down. And I got accepted. Oh, wonderful. So much to the credit of whoever the director of missions was back then, he sort of overlooked that terrible GRE score I had. But I certainly hope the, the uh, process is better now than it was when I took it. So I mean, just be warned. Just be I've, warned. What I've heard is that for music programs, you don't even need a GRE at this point. So let's say I have a friend who's applying to grad schools as a vocalist. She doesn't even need it. A friend okay. who's a composer, he doesn't even need it. So apparently, apparently it's not as necessary as it once was. I mean, well, that's, that's good. Yeah, that's definitely good. 
Um, so the other question I, I want to ask you, there, there are two things that interest me about your, your Jung Surtur experience. One of them is I noticed that you read Braille, you mentioned you, you read Braille music. Mm-hmm. Um, in my experience with musicians, blind musicians, that's really unusual. Can you talk about how you, how you got interested, how you got into reading Braille music? Oh, sure. There's a teacher at the Perkins School for the Blind, and she knew Braille music. And I didn't go to Perkins myself, but I thought it would be useful to have some knowledge of it just because um, it would be good to understand how music worked. And I thought, well, you know, I've been learning a lot of music by ear. It might be really useful to learn Braille music and just kind of supplement the oral kind of learning process with a more tactile one. And kind of the more I learned Braille music, I found it was much uh, it was much easier to engage with the material that I was learning. Be, I mean, mainly it was vocal music, just because to read piano sheet music in Braille music, you'd need at least four arms. Unfortunately, yeah. I don't have them. <laughs> but um, it was really interesting because uh, they used, there was a primer of Braille music, I think from 1963, that this lady used. And it was really interesting and really effective. And then I thought to myself, you know, what if I, I went online and I looked at summer programs and I thought, you know, it would be really great to see whether there are Braille music learning summer programs. And it turned out that there's a company called Dancing Dots who make music notation software. Yes. And the head of that company was hosting kind of a music academy in California, the Enchanted Hills camp for blind people. And I went there and it was really a wonderful experience because it was very fast-paced. It was very intense. And they would give you music and they'd say, okay, here you go, play it. You'd have to play it. Sing it. You'd have to sing it. They'd give you things with words, things without words, things with gibberish words. They'd make you use sulfate syllables. They'd make you just like all of these different methods of getting the Braille music notation into you. And I found that really valuable because, because the, the education was so so ingrained and so solid that still now if you give me a vocal score that has brown music i could read it maybe even if you give me some piano and don't make me use four arms i could probably kind of read through it and that ability the the one issue with brown music i find is because it's tactile you can't really skim it very well right um but still i mean it's it's better than learning by ear I mean, I, I use both methods. And in some cases, learning by ear is your only option when you don't want to carry volumes and volumes of books with you. But I think the music braille is wonderful because it gives a very tactile approach. Um, a teacher of mine created a music notation system using Lego bricks. We have these awful dictations that we'd get at New England Conservatory in theory classes. And remind they say, okay, me, don't remind me. <laughs> tell me about it. And I would come in with a tray of Lego and a base plate, and I'd get building. And it was wonderful because it's a very easy system. It uses very common bricks. Anyone can make this system and use it for notation. It doesn't notate pitch, but it notates rhythm. And I found that really valuable because you were able to really easily um, kind of engage with these notes. What do I mean? I mean like a three by one is a dotted eighth note. And in Braille music, you know there's a symbol for it, and you, you assume theoretically you know how long it lasts. But because we're everything in the Lego is by one, meaning three out of 16, we know that it lasts an eighth note and a half, three sixteenth notes. And I found that tactile engagement 
with these notes that I could move, that I could place, that I could switch around if I messed up, that I could build a wall with or a tower. I found that really engaging because it gave me the opportunity on one hand to engage with the theory of music, but on the other hand, to enjoy it. It's so easy. All, a lot of my NEC friends, they're exhausted. They come out of these theory classes and they feel like their brain is fried. And it's fried because they've been thinking about it from a purely theoretical standpoint while I've been mm-hmm. building with little bits of plastic. Mm-hmm. And what a wonderful way that, to teach music to blind kids. That would just be oh, very. fabulous. Well, it's, not just to blind, it's not just no. to blind kids, it's to, every, it's to everyone. Anybody, yeah. yeah. There's I, an I mean, article, that's the point. It's universal concept. There's an article called Musical Bricks that outlines this notation system so that if you guys want to use it, you can. Where is that? It's in Future Reflections in one of those magazines. Future Reflections, where does that, is that? It's a magazine for parents and teachers of blind children. And we need to put a link to that in our announcement list for Mm -hmm. sure. This sort of speaks to your advocacy, Matt. You also did a TED Talk, and when I listened to it, it just got the sense that you were trying to share your experiences with everybody that listened to that talk and to get them to thinking as well. And that sort of goes along with the, the other things that you've been doing that Peter mentioned about making the phone calls and just a great way of advocating for everybody. But thank you for doing that TED Talk. And how did, how, how does that happen? There was a book that I read called the TED Talk Official Speaker's Guide. And what they wrote in it, one of their guidelines for a TED Talk, they said that a TED Talk must make people think. It must make them think about the world differently and they must come away with a different perspective into the world than when they came in. And so this TED Talk happened randomly. And I just, these people from a nearby university in Boston called, they said, hey, we have a, we have a TEDx event, a community-led TED Talk. Do you want to do it? And I said, sure, why not? And then was the process of crafting the talk. And this was really interesting because I had never really crafted a a speech of such caliber before and I was trying to figure out how to approach it and I realized that standing on stage and talking and switching slides would not be the way to do it so there's a person at the New England Conservatory who danced with the Boston Ballet for a decade and then she does a lot of choreography work and I got in touch with her and I asked her can you teach me how to gesture because I can't um, I don't speak hand and so then um she kind of, we would meet every week and she created these gestures that she would assign to different sentences in the talk. And I found that really useful because the more, the more engaging my gestures, the more links they were to what I was saying, the easier it was for people to engage with them just because I mean, people are eyeball oriented. They want to see stuff happen and they don't want like a, a big pole standing on the on the stage and not moving. They don't want a tree on stage, they want a person. And so being able to engage with them from a gesture-based standpoint, I think was really, really valuable. And then the talk itself, it was really just about taking stories and interweaving them with kind of other people's experiences, really trying to get these people to think differently, as I've said before, but also engage them. Make sure that they're engaged, make sure that they're energized, make sure that they're really hanging on your every word. And that TED Talk happened last spring. And then another group reached out to me and they said, hey, we want you to do a different TED Talk. And they said, we have an auditorium with a thousand people in it and we need you, January 25th, be there or be square, okay? And so 
the process is repeating. Now I'm meeting with that same lady to make new gestures for a different talk. And what's wonderful is the packaging, meaning that I can take the same story about Lego, about a podcast, Blind Guy Travels, that I'll get into in a minute or so, and about the virtual reality helmet, and package them in a totally new way, so that even if people have heard those stories, they can think, wow, this talk's not like the other one. It's talking about a completely different thing. And I think it's just these talks are so valuable because they're wonderful exercises in audience engagement, in the sense that these people are all ears for 11, 12 minutes. You have their attention, and it is your goal as the TED speaker to keep them engaged and energized. And then when they leave, your goal is to make them go, hmm. And it was really an honor to get to be one of those people to make these total strangers think about their world in a different way. And you absolutely did that. I listened to the talk. It was wonderful. Thank you. Talk about for a minute your podcast. Sure. So Blind God Travels is a podcast that will be out hopefully in the end of January, beginning of February. And this podcast is a 3D sound podcast. So the sound's all around your head. And the goal is really to create immersive experiences just because like a lot of like some blind people get to travel and do it a lot but other blind people are really daunted by the process of traveling and going out there and kind of the world is big and scary and cars make noise and can hit you and I just really wanted to create a podcast where the listeners could really feel involved with the traveling process because of this 3D sound when you hear this podcast, it sounds like you're there, like you're next to me. So our first episode is about what blind people can learn from cinema. And it's an interesting episode because on one hand, we talk about a friend of mine who accidentally turned out to be one of the greatest video describers I'd ever met because I like, asked him to go to the theater with me and I went with him and another guy and the other guy couldn't describe and this guy took over and this guy just had a knack for it. So on one hand, we're giving you the experience of being in the theater and watching this movie with me and this guy who's describing. But on the other hand, we're going back into the history of it. How did video description start? What does it mean to the people who make it? What does it mean to the people who consume it? And it's just such an interesting landscape, how the audio description evolved, how it changed, how it's getting included into amusement parks and museums and all these other locations and how prevalent it is today. And it was just amazing. I got to interview people at the described and uh, what is it? The Center for Accessible Media, National Center for Accessible Media, WGBH. And it was incredible because these people were the pioneers of the system. They were there in the 80s and the 90s when they started describing Arthur the Aardvark. And they're still there. And it was just a fascinating experience talking to these legends, these people whose films I'd grown up with as a child. The library in Boston had VHS tapes that you would rent and they had description in them. And I just remember watching, I don't know, Harry Potter or The Lion King or whatever films and just being really engrossed in the experience because these people were there. They were watching it with me. I felt like I was at the theater with a good friend and a very eloquent one who could really describe things and really help the blind, uh, blind viewer really engage with the material and feel like they were not just sitting in a room with the television, but there were people around. It was really an immersive experience. One of the first, one may argue, immersive experiences created for the blind. And so kind of, it'll be interesting just because it will kind of flash back and forth between the, the actual experience of the theater and the origins of this and then the future. 
and also what blind people can learn from movies themselves. How much they can learn about the world and human emotion, and gesture and costume and face and all this stuff that blind people usually don't have access to suddenly zooms into focus because of this description. Well, this is going to be a great podcast. Wow, I'm looking forward to that episode. So that oh, I'll yeah. send you links. Please all do. Right. Well, I want to thank everybody for um, joining us and talking to Matt. It's been a fascinating hour. We probably could do another one. Matt, do you have a website? I'm sure you must at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the best way to get in touch with me is on legofortheblind.com. There is a link at the bottom that says questions, and you click on that link, and you can contact me from there. Perfect. So we'll include that. And if anybody wants to get in touch with us at the Art Parlor, we now have an email address, which is artparlor at acbradio.org, and that does work. And we encourage you to join us again for our next show. Go to our website, friendsandart.com. If you haven't paid your dues, pay your dues. And be on the lookout for announcements about our upcoming scholarship, which we wish to award again this year for 2020. And I think that this current scholarship winner has demonstrated his great abilities in lots of areas. And he came from, I think there were about six people that applied, and we hope we have that many this coming year. So please consider applying for the scholarship, joining us. I think um, as the scholarship chair, I think we get closer to 10 applicants, uh, five or six of which were really, really strong. So uh, we hope we get at least as many this year. And uh, uh, I will now shut up. That's okay. I think you're correct. Art Parlor is brought to you by Friends in Art and ACB Radio. It airs beginning every Saturday at 8 p.m. on ACB Radio Mainstream. To listen and for a full schedule, go to www.acbradio.org mainstream. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at artparlor at acbradio.org and please feel free to check out our website, www.friendsinart.com. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next month.